This is the Investor Mindset Podcast, and I'm Stephen Pesavento. And for as long as I can remember, I've been obsessed with understanding how we can think better, how we can be better, and how we can do better. And each episode, we explore lessons on motivation and mindset from the most successful real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the nation. Welcome back, Investor Mindset listeners. Definitely excited about the launch and how great things have been going. We've hit well over 5,000 downloads within the first weeks, and that is incredible. Can't thank you guys enough for all the support, all the comments, all the direct messages. We love it. Keep it coming over here. And thank you for all the reviews. It really does help boost us in the rankings on, on, uh, on Apple. We are doing amazing there. And I want to point out one from Junior in Salt Lake. Everyone's got to start somewhere. Super easy. Feels like he's speaking directly to me. The mindset is the perfect place to start before beginning any amazing journey. Keep the bombs coming and I'll be listening. Well, thank you, Junior. Definitely appreciate the support and the review. And for everyone who hasn't yet, please make sure to jump on iTunes, drop us a review. It helps us reach more people with the investor mindset. So let's go learn a little bit more and jump into this next episode. All right, guys. Welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I'm really excited here. A Southern California native, Hunter Thompson, I have on the line with me here. Uh, how's it going, Hunter? I'm doing well. Thanks again for having me on. I'm excited to have you. I met Hunter back at a Phoebe event. If you remember from an earlier episode, uh, Matt Owens was talking about Phoebe. Uh, Hunter is a regular at those. And uh, Hunter is a full-time real estate investor, founder of ASIM Capital, a private equity firm based out of Los Angeles, California. And since starting ASIM, Hunter has helped more than 250 investors allocate capital over 100 properties. He's personally raised more than 20 million in private capital and controls more than 60 million in commercial real estate. He is a beast. He runs Cashflow Connection podcast. It's a big deal if you haven't heard it and you're looking at passive investing, you definitely want to check that out. So uh, I'm excited to talk with you today, Hunter. Yeah, me too. I, I really like the format of the podcast and I think talk about the mindset, something that's completely underutilized. So I'm happy to get into this in any level of detail you're interested in. Awesome. So that's great. So you have been kicking butt. You're helping passive investors put their money to work. But let's take a look back. Let's take a look back to your childhood. Uh, what events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today? Well, I think that you know I was very fortunate in the sense that I was an entrepreneur very, very early on. Yeah, as soon as I could speak, I was trying to, to communicate value and sell and to communicate passion. And you know, it was from everything from when I was about five, my parents lived next to a, a really popular concert venue. And so when there would be football games, when there'd be concerts, there would be an incredible supply-demand equilibrium with parking. And I figured this out and realized that we could sell parking into our backyard, into our parking spaces for five, ten, fifteen dollars. And my mom and I would split the profits. And this was just something I absolutely loved doing, just making a sign that was interesting to attract investors or in this case, parking people. And just that whole dynamic of being able to you know, try to see which person could maybe pay more and try to get the most out of them. Like I was just like a five-year-old trying to, trying to make it honest. you know. Um, but I just really loved that. And I remember the first time that there was $100 in my bank account and just being like, you know, I've made it. You know, this is like this major accomplishment and just, I just always love that stuff. And then, you know, moving through into, you know, high school and college, I worked for a company called Cutco, which was really uh, influential in my ability to communicate. 
And the thing about Cutco in particular that I liked is that I was a big believer in the product. And that made selling it really, really easy for me. Because mm. if I can so get important. In, exactly. If I can get passionate about a project, that is what all of my best friends know. If I get passionate and focused, it's like really hard to fight against someone that's really confident and passionate and focused and thinks that they're communicating something that, you know, if the buyers want this, you know, we're going to make sure they get as much as they want, basically. And it's my duty to facilitate that. And so that was really good. But I will say that learning that, I did realize that learning those skills made me realize, man, this can be used in the wrong way. And so it's really, really important for someone like myself uh, to make sure that the product that they're promoting is completely ethically aligned with who they are as a person. And we can talk a lot about kind of being authentic and stuff like that. But man, yeah. the moment that you point that in the wrong direction, it's number one, you're not going to have success. Number two, if you do, it's going to not be the kind of success that's going to last. It's going to be the kind of thing that keeps you up at night. And so thankfully, from an early age, I was able to kind of refine some of those selling strategies, but also really understand that the ethicalness behind selling is is absolutely critical. And now what I do today, selling really isn't how I would describe what I do today, but at the end of the day, it's identifying a quality product and, and sharing that with people that are interested. But that's what great that's great salespeople recognize that sales really comes down to helping people get what they really wanted anyways. You're just kind of helping them get there. Correct. Uh, by asking them the right questions, doing the right things. But you know, just like the Wolf of Wall Street talks about in some of his training material that he puts out, all sales can be used for bad. And he exactly. did. And he went to prison for a long time. So it's good that you've, you're have uh, you focused on doing the right thing so you can sleep well at night. So it sounds like you've always been a hustler. Where do you think that came from, Hunter? Um, mostly because I really didn't fit into uh, the typical paradigm. I felt, you know, to be honest with you, Early on, I was really confident that I was going to be a successful person. I'm always working towards that goal, mm -hmm. but you know, going to school, for example, it's not something I was extremely like excelled at. And I think that the teachers picked up on two things. A lot of teachers picked up on the fact that I had some talent, and those were the ones that are extremely frustrated with the fact that I wasn't taking school seriously. And I think that something that I think that is really telling, and I speak about this publicly sometimes. In, I think, the year 1850, 83% of all the workforce was in farming. And it's like, if I was a farmer, people would just think I was a bad worker. They would just think, this kid isn't really that into it. He's not that productive. He's not that good at farming. He's useless. And that economy, I would have been completely useless. you know. And thankfully, I was born in a time where there's a massive, massive opportunity for different jobs. There's so many more different jobs than there was 100 years ago, for example. And now it's like, outside of that school-confined paradigm, when you have the opportunity to really learn new skills, for example, on a daily basis as an entrepreneur, you're constantly doing that. Uh, particularly what I do, I host a podcast with people that I have a lot of respect for. It's like constantly uh -huh. interviewing people like IMF consultants and economists and, you know, that is really where I excel. I am love, love, love learning. But if you were in the normal paradigm of school, you wouldn't have thought that. So where does it come from? It comes from a combination of being confident that I had a lot to bring to the, to the table, had a lot to bring to the economy, but wasn't in the right position until I left academia. You know, Not even until after college did I really start to see, wow, I love working. I love mm -hmm. learning. I love being an absolute expert in certain things that you have to go out of your you have to go to great lengths to be an expert in. 
And so that was something that, you know, I, I had that naturally, but it's, you know, just to touch on this real quick, it's fortunate that I had that confidence because if I didn't, you can only last so long, you know, in that same paradigm. There's so many kids out there that probably have incredible talents that mm-hmm. over years of years and years of indoctrination saying, look, you're, you're making C's, for example, you're clearly not going to be someone that's very intelligent. Mm-hmm. It's like nothing could be further from the truth. So I feel you on that because I was an okay student and I'm a great mm-hmm. entrepreneur. I'm a great, when I, yes. when I find something that I can point myself in that direction, I'm all in. I'm all in, baby, and it's good, and I love it. Where do you think you picked up that confidence? How did you, how did you believe that you were going to be good enough, that you were going to be able to go and succeed, even though everything in front of you is telling you, I'm a failure? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, and I just want to clarify, I, I wouldn't say that there were things saying that I was a failure. It's just that I felt confident that I was uh, special, you know, and there were not a lot of data points in the typical paradigm that suggested that. Now, outside of that paradigm, I was doing cool stuff. So for example, my parents were very influential in saying, look, whatever you do, be obsessed with, and it's going to get you really far. Even if it's something menial, and at the time when you're eight and 10, for example, just being obsessed with, I'll I'll put it uh, to a a fine point on it. So I took um, cross country very seriously. Um, I was a runner in high school, and I was uh, positioning myself to run in college, um, was probably at the caliber to run a D1 school that wasn't a super competitive uh, school, but like certainly had the opportunity to run in college and was offered scholarships uh, at the D2 level. So and just to put uh, kind of some numbers on that, so a 438 mile would be a PR of mine, a 1636 three mile. So like a, a fairly fast. competitive runner. I ran a little cross country. That's really fast. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. But and this is kind of, we're talking about some stuff I never really talked about before, but this is interesting. So I actually thought I was like one race away from being that like next, next level, that like elite level, that like undeniable D1 college athlete. Cause that's just how I thought about it. And as a competitor, sometimes you have to think that, but now looking back on it, man, I wasn't even near some of those guys. You know, there's some guys that go sub 15 and three mile, for example. And I always thought, you know, oh man, like next month, you know, I'll be right there. But um, that's just because I took it so seriously. I took it so seriously. And the taking it seriously part was the, take, the key takeaway. You know, I couldn't go sub five in a mile right now if I, if I tried really hard. But I do know what work ethic resulted in me being able to run at those numbers. And that's something I carry with me to this day. So I was very thankful for that. That, that well. part right there is so powerful. You believed that you were going to be successful. You believed that you were going to kill it in cross country. And today I can tell you, you, you believe that you're making a big difference uh, in a lot of people's lives. And I, and I know that you are. And so kind of going into something, I've had a limiting belief, or I did, when I first started in real estate, I believed I didn't have enough experience, therefore I can't do it. I believed I was too young, therefore I shouldn't take the leap yet. And I believed I didn't have any money, and so therefore I didn't have any value to bring to the table. And uh, I also believed that going and working on raising money was something that I couldn't do because who's going to want to invest with me? How did you get over that for your first capital raise on working on that limiting belief? Man, I will tell you a, a quick story about this. So, you know, I've obviously talked about just some internal confidence that in part that was environmental, in part that was some experience stuff. And so going into that, and also my background in sales. 
So really my entrance into real estate, 2010 happened, 2008 happened, I should say, and I knew there was going to be an opportunity in real estate. A part of the reoccurring thesis mm-hmm. of my life is that when everyone is looking right, I'm very much willing to look left, if not just go left without looking, just because yeah. I'm always a, very much down to stay away from the herd. So with real estate, it ended up being incredibly favorable, right? Because the timing of the market, the fact that I was coming of age to start a company at the time that the market did what it did, it, it just, I'll never, I always want to be very humble in that. And we're going to find out over the next 10 years why that's important to be humble about mm-hmm. that, right? And our underwriting standards speak to that. Um, but, but generally speaking, that, 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 when that happened, I was really dedicated to helping my friends and family invest, particularly my immediate family. So the first investments I made were for my own personal portfolio and for my family's portfolio. And after a few years of acquiring a track record and building an investment thesis around the mobile home park business, which, by the way, to this day is one of my favorite asset classes for a variety of reasons, but at the time, it was even more favorable. I mean, in no uncertain terms, we could identify and purchase 10 caps that had nothing but upside, and the downside was extremely well protected. And so I was thinking, as a new investor, look, even if we don't add value to these assets, just getting a 10% cap rate and, let's say, a 13% return, if I could have an entire portfolio turning at that rate with depreciation, man, we're going to be fine in not a very long amount of time. Well, Turns out the market corrected, and now uh, being in the mobile home park business is certainly in trend. But I can tell you, back in 2012 or so, I would be the only person talking about this. It'd be very common for no one to really understand the thesis. So when the track record was really established after a few years, and we had partnered with a operating partner that was a top-tier operating partner, industry mover, someone who was taken very seriously in this industry, I decided to have a luncheon with not necessarily my immediate family, but friends and family, and they were allowed to invite kind of a plus one, plus two type of situation, right? So these are people that I knew and would most likely come uh, because of our personal relationship, but didn't really necessarily have a background in investing. So we had this luncheon and I had food, people started showing up. I was so excited. I'd given this presentation over and over again, hundreds of times. I truly could give the entire presentation without looking at any of the slides at this point, just absolutely ironed out. Plus, I was really confident in my knowledge. So I was confident in my knowledge. I was confident about my ability to sell. And I had some built up a track record of not only in the business, but also being able to sell as well. And I gave this presentation. It was about 30 minutes long. At the end of the presentation, I had passed out a piece of paper and it said investment commitment. And I said, write the number that you're anticipating investing, turn it over to keep it private, and I'll pick it up at the end, right? So I didn't want to put pressure on people to let it be known publicly how much they're interested in investing. And we had an agreement with the operating partner that we would invest at least a minimum of half a million dollars to make this deal work. And so with 30 people there, all of which that could have written checks for 50 grand each, you know, I was anticipating a million dollars or so. We counted up the tally at the end, and it was a total of zero dollars. Oh my gosh. Zero, zero dollars. Zero. Right. And so the reason I kind of provide a little bit of the backstory is just to give you a clue as to how blown away and blindsided I was by what this yeah. was. I mean, and what blew you away I was, it was confident because you knew how good of a deal it was, but the other people didn't, didn't know. They didn't have that same faith. Exactly. And it's one of those things that 
the realization after months and months of trying to get over this, because I had already made the commitment to be an entrepreneur and specifically a real estate entrepreneur. So this was my business. And I had already built up a track record in the business. So it was really confusing to me. But I came to realize that as much as I was saying, you're never going to believe this. There's an incredible opportunity in the mobile home park business to a group of people that had never heard of it before, which I thought they would be like, wow, this kid is a genius. Really, they were like, you're right, we're never going to believe it. We're going to move on with our lives because we're not interested in this topic. That's why we haven't been pursuing these types of investments already for the last 50 years of our lives. And so it made me realize that what's really important in this business, because you're playing in a different world, like maybe I could sell a $1,000 pair of knives to someone, but to give to make them give me $100,000 for an indefinite amount of time for seven to 10 years, that is categorically different. And so what you have to do when you're getting up into that $50,000, $100,000 range, you have to build an infrastructure to attract people that are already interested in your perspective, nurture those leads. There's some sort of need, lead nurture process. And that way, you're not going around hunting for leads. You're attracting them. A uh, friend of so mine, smart. Paul Moore, always says, you don't want to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a friend of mine, Paul Moore, says, you don't want to be going around in the forest hunting. You want to be the bear at the bottom of the stream where the salmon just flow directly to. And not to say that my investors are the fish and I'm eating them or something like that, but you understand Absolutely. the point. It's the only way to make a business scale. Yeah, that, that, that makes so much sense. Well, with somebody who's raised as much money as you have, it's really easy to look at you and say, you know, from an outside perspective, oh, well, of course he can do it. Obviously, he's built this up over however many years and he's really good at all these things. But to hear that you ran into that same challenge, but you ran through it, you continued because, you know, from my understanding, you, you ended up raising that money. Yeah, yeah, that's actually true. And I, your investors or, or listeners will probably need to hear we scratched and clawed our way to $340,000. And then within two weeks of the time period, a friend of my CPAs ended up just un, unequivocally, they did not know what we were trying to accomplish. They literally invested $160,000. So we hit the half a million absolutely on the nose and were able to deliver. Not the way we wanted to, believe me, but we were able to deliver on that. And that, that was truly just luck at the end of the day. Um, not something that we could replicate, but that, um, that did happen. And then to your point, once we did begin to create that infrastructure and that thought leadership platform and the podcast and such, um, you know, we did go from a million dollar fund to a $2 million fund to a $5 million fund. And now we have a $15 million fund. And it's remarkable what you can accomplish in this business. I'll tell just a quick story, kind of on the other side of the spectrum. Um, you know, there's a well-funded crowdfunding platform that exists. That's an industry leader that has, you know, VC funded crowdfunding platform. They recently announced their 200 millionth dollar raised. Mm. Okay. I believe they have about a hundred employees. Absolutely remarkable. I will say that I have personally been in a car with two individuals that cumulatively have each raised $200 million. And these individuals are not VC funded. They don't have employees. They are people that may have an assistant mm -hmm. or a partner. And that's it. And that's what's possible in the business. And that's why this conversation is uh, important, is that you can accomplish amazing things in the commercial real estate business without getting that burdensome overhead. Not to say I wouldn't be happy as hell if I founded that VC funded crowdfunding platform. But you get yeah. the point. I mean, if, if he can do it, I can do it. If you can do it, I can do it. And so I hope everyone takes that exactly. away. And you know, I'd say majority of our listeners know exactly who you are, Hunter, and what you do. Um, but for those who don't, 
kind of tell us a little bit about what your primary focus is from an investing standpoint. Yeah, so I really like looking at recession-resistant assets. This is something that around 2015, I started becoming really, really cautious about the marketplace and even sold some of my assets that I most likely shouldn't have sold, just being extremely cautious. But the big picture thesis is this. All types of real estate do well when the economy is booming and the capital markets are loose, and only certain types of real estate do well when the economy is going through some sort of correction. And so if you can balance out your portfolio, even if it's a small percentage of your portfolio, with some of the recession-resistant assets, most notably, let's say, mobile home parks, self-storage, C-class workforce housing, for example, where the worse the economy does, the more demand there is for the product, or at least the product is stable in its demand through the cycle, you can really start to get that predictability of outcome, which I am just a huge believer of. That's a term that is not used enough, and I try to use it as much as possible now because it's literally half of what investors want. They want that predictability of outcome. The other side is that they want a high return. But that predictability of outcome is equally important. If you could say, I will 100% you know, collateralized by God himself, give you 6% on your money every year for the next 50 years, there's a lot of investors out there to be very interested in that. And if it was uh, tax-free, I might do it myself. So that predictability outcome is completely underrated in this space, and the way to achieve that is through those recession-resistant assets that I mentioned already. So to put it to put it in perspective, what you're really doing is you're going out and you're building relationships with some of the best operators in the nation who do different types of investing in these kind of asset classes: self storage, mobile home park, um, maybe some others. And you're going out and you're vetting those operators. Yeah. You're doing all of that work up front to make sure that you're only working with the best of the best. And then you go back to your investors and you raise, raise private equity, which is a fancy term for saying you raise investment funds from those folks. And then you invest those into those deals. And all of those investors are then partners in those deals, meaning they own a piece of that pie and they get all kinds of tax benefits and returns assuming everything goes as planned. That's correct. And so that's part of that's the division of labor. So I really like communicating with investors. I really like conducting due diligence on operating partners, you know, identifying who they are as people. What is their integrity like? What is their character like? And all the other adjectives that are actually going to help you decide whether or not the investment's going to perform or not. And so I really also, because of that predictability of outcome, I am willing to exchange control for diversification. So how I position myself in the marketplace is to identify operating partners that are best in class, conduct due diligence on them while also being an expert in the particular property type. So I will go on site. I will review not only the profit and loss statements, but also the physical aspects of the property as well. But when it comes to the on-site management, I will defer to the sponsor. And so we've built a business that is extremely flexible in the investment thesis. Any stage of the cycle, any time a certain investment vehicle becomes too overheated, we can transition into another vehicle. And the reason I like that is that in order to have a market advantage, you must be specialized. But that specialization is sometimes antithetic to financial planning, right? Because that predictability of outcome requires diversification. So what my specialty is, is curating those sponsors, identifying those best-in-class sponsors, and conducting due diligence so that and in such a way that a passive investor could not. Because let's say you're investing $200,000, which one of our investors may be. They still don't have the ability to conduct 100 hours of due diligence. It's simply economically not viable. They can't fly around the country for months doing due diligence. And so we bring that economies of scale in the marketplace where 
especially right now, I think it's absolutely critical to have that extra layer yeah, of sophistication. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So as I'm talking to you here, Hunter, and I, I've known you for a little while, uh, obviously you're a super smart guy, you're analytical, you're articulate. I appreciate it. Thank uh, you. And you're, and you're very authentic. Like when you come through, I can tell that you're, you really mean what you say and you're probably pretty good at sales. I mean, what, what are you not good at? What are things that uh, <laughs> actually challenge you? Well, I'll tell you this, um, and this is something that I think especially younger entrepreneurs need to hear, which is that, I'll put it this way, if you take a real honest time audit of the time that you're spending during the week, write down all the tasks that you're doing and write down the, the amount of hours that you're spending on each of those tasks, do this for five days and it may change your life. Like a true honest account of what you're spending your time doing. And then put those tasks in Excel and then rate each task on a scale of one to 10 in terms of one being like something that you're incompetent at and most likely should not be doing at all. And 10 being the kind of thing that Dan Sullivan refers to as your quote, unique ability. Basically the kind of thing that you would do 16 hours a day and wouldn't even realize you're working. The kind of thing that everyone else is always amazed at how good you are, but it's just something that comes naturally to you. And slowly it will sort those things that you do in Excel, sort them from one to 10, and then start outsourcing the ones at the bottom. And then all of a sudden, you spend more and more of your time in that eight, nine, 10 range, and your business just starts to scale immediately because that's how you actually get it done. And so when it comes to weaknesses, I have many. The thing is, I don't do them because I have a team to one degree or another, whether it's someone that is on Odesk or it's someone that I've partnered with handling it. And so I get to do things that I really like. For example, interviewing people about challenging topics. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about on my podcast is economics. Um, I do have a bit of a background in economics, but my learning of economics has been completely revolutionized because of those conversations and the depth of those conversations. So, you know, I, I used to be really, really mm -hmm. bad at copywriting. It's just not a strength of mine. It requires a the the detail that I just don't possess when it comes to actually like grammatical stuff, syntax. But I have a great copy editor now, so I can create content that's written um, because of that, and that's really the the vehicle by which we. Yeah, that's so those key. Things. I think a lot of people get overwhelmed at the thought of starting a business or taking on some new project uh, because they feel like they have to know everything, and frankly, they don't. And I think it's 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 a silly thing if you're going to try and go out and do everything. You want to work with the best of the best in their field. If you're going to go out and do a podcast, you want to have an editor. You want to have somebody who's going to cut video. You want to have somebody who's going to know how to do social and promotion. You just do the thing that you're the best at, whatever that might be, and uh, you go find some other people. Now, of course, it can be challenging once you start getting used to that and things have to get done and you don't have those people. You have to step up and do it, but that, that's what it's all about is yep. building the team. And so I can tell that you're pretty successful and it's probably because of some of the, the habits that you're doing on a daily basis. You seem like the kind of guy who... Would have a little bit of routine. Walk me through what are some of your keystone habits that really help make you live a better life every day. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I appreciate you've given me a couple compliments. And I just want to say, like, I really do appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show, and I appreciate you kind of giving me those compliments. So interesting to hear because I'm sure that anyone that you speak to about that, we always feel uh, similar to the racing, right? I mean, in high school, the cross country stuff. I always feel like I'm six months away from accomplishing something, right? And that's that's part of being an entrepreneur is feeling like, man, well, you know, you said, oh yeah, so you're successful. It's like, no, 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 I will. But like in six months, then I'll be, a, you know, and so that always is the mm -hmm. case. So you always have to do things like, 
it, it really accept and codify those big wins. So in terms of one of the routines that I have, I have a pretty like ironed out morning routine, probably takes 30 minutes or so. But one of them is because of that constant hunger, that constant, un, mm-hmm. I'm never satisfied, right? As most entrepreneurs are not because they aren't in that six months ahead is to say one of your most proud moments, either as an entrepreneur or not, every single day. It's to actually, it's a mental jewel to really take one second and be like, man, you know, that time that I ran that 1638 three mile, man, that was such a great moment, you know, and damn, that's cool. And then, okay, now we can focus on the hustle and the grind and like what's six months out and what's 12 months out and three months out. So that's one thing that I think not enough entrepreneurs do. What happens is you get burnt out because you're just constantly being hard on yourself. And the reason you're doing that though, is that you see that the people are really successful. Mm -hmm. They're doing the same thing, but it's really important to take that codifying win and to say, man, a perfect example is remember that time that I was in a room with all these people that were much more smarter than me, that is one that it's like, okay, mm-hmm. that's such a green light, you know, that's such a good position to be in. So constantly be striving for those and then constantly recognize yourself for accomplishing those wins. Even if it's something like being in a room where everyone's smarter than you, which by the way is an incredible place yeah, to be. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners are going to relate to what you just said because I know that I related a lot to that. It's kind of, you're, you're always reaching for something new. People are like, I'm so impressed. You're so successful. You're doing all these things. And I often think to myself, what I've done, I'm not quite there yet. This is going to get us there. And then the next thing is going to get us there. And then the next thing is going to get us there. And that, you know, it comes down to that's leadership is that you're always yearning for something and you get to kind of put that out there for other people to follow along and, and kind of go down that path together. Damn, it can make it hard to be fulfilled sometimes if you don't take a moment and give yourself a little gratitude. So that's that's powerful. Hunter. Yes. And absolutely can be hard in your relationships as well. You know, because people are like, especially if they see you and they're trying to compliment you, and your answer is always like, you know, I don't even have time for this compliment. Mm-hmm. I just have so much work to do. And my fiance mm-hmm. is an entrepreneur as well. And so there's a great talk that Cameron Harold has done called The Highs and Lows of Being an Entrepreneur. I don't suffer from it as deeply as my fiance does, but there are days when it's like, it's like a small version of mania, you know, where it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. We're crushing the world. Everything's awesome. And then 50 minutes later being like, I'm going to close. I'm going to close. I'm going to fold. There's no reason for me to even do anything. It's like, oh gosh, like pick a lane. But um, yeah, Cameron Harold, by the way, is a great influence of mine. Uh, He's been a guest on the show. If you just Google Cashflow Connections, Cameron Harold, one of my favorite conversations because of this discussion with work-life balance, he seems to have it really figured out. He's hyper-successful and it's clear that he has a great life. And that's, you know, to me, that's one and the yeah, same. Absolutely. Right? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm excited. I'm going to look that one up as soon as we get off the line here. Uh, but that brings us close to the end of the show, the growth fire round, which isn't actually as rapid as you might expect. Got a couple questions here I'm really excited to talk to you about. Uh, what's a book that's impacted your life the most or one that you're most excited about? Right now. Okay. So, man, there's so many I can give you, but I will do Miracle Mornings for Entrepreneurs is amazing. So, a lot of people have heard of Miracle Mornings. This one is specifically called Miracle Mornings for Entrepreneurs. The way I like it is that it talks a lot about some people that consider you know, the hootie tootie meditation affirmation stuff that people should be doing in the morning, which mm-hmm. I was never a believer in. And then it's like, look on this 
Look at this on a risk-adjusted basis. What could possibly be gained for sitting alone for 10 minutes a day as opposed to what you may lose? Mm-hmm. Give it a shot. Give, it, give me seven days of that and read that book. The other side of the book, though, is mm-hmm. written by Cameron Harold, who is the COO of Got Junk. So COO, right? Extremely detail-oriented systems, like practical, pragmatic type of writing, very dense. And I think the combination of those two makes an incredible um, entrepreneur. So Miracle Mornings for Entrepreneurs. I also really like the charisma myth, which I think doesn't get nearly enough attention, but it's all about answering the question if charisma can be learned. That's great. I love the Miracle Morning, and I felt like it's pretty difficult to dedicate an entire hour to your morning every day. But I do a couple of those things, and as long as I'm doing them, I feel great. It's a win every day uh, when you when you yes. start your your day out like that. So, from a purpose perspective, why do you do what you do, Hunter? Man, you know, I'm always thinking about a family, right? And and just to be before I go any f- further, it needs to be said that I don't have one. I'm in the process of making the smallest family scientifically possible, which mm-hmm. is I'm about to get married. And so then I know from speaking with many people that I respect, everything changes after that moment. But all of this for me is really to be able to put myself in a position so that the, the challenges that so many couples and families face regarding finances mm-hmm. can be eliminated to a very significant degree. Um, there, it's an amazing time to be a capitalist in the United States. There's all this pro-socialist rhetoric coming out, people talking about 70% marginal tax rates, and you can feel like you're being overburdened by the government and that, man, we're looking for the exits. It is really important to remember that the billionaires and the centimillionaires overwhelmingly are sending their people and children Mm -hmm. here in the United States to learn from our culture and our work ethic and the laws that we have in place that really put forth capital improvement and capital investment and capitalism as a whole. So don't feel like you got a bad run of cards because you got born into one of the most favorable places to be a capitalist in the United States. Pursue that wealth to the nth degree and a lot of those problems can be eliminated. There's many other problems and significant wealth can multiply those other problems. But I'm in pursuit of that generational wealth and I know that a lot of listeners are as well. Don't be afraid of that. Yeah, I love that. There's a great book from one of my favorite speakers and podcasters, uh, Brian Buffini, and it's called The Immigrant Edge. And that book is really all about why Mm. the immigrants that come to America, why the immigrants that come to America have the most advantage. And it's because they come from a place where they don't expect to have these things and they see it and they take advantage of it. And they end up growing these massive companies or even small companies, but they create opportunity for, for themselves. And, you know, we as Americans, as we're here or you're listening to this all around the world, take advantage of the ideas that are going throughout this culture. Absolutely. So from an inspiration standpoint, who are some of your mentors and how did they influence your career? Man, so you know, the first person that really had a really significant impact in my career is Jeremy Roll, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons I'm very, very fortunate because just a quick story, the timing of the market, I try to be humble about, which we talked about earlier, but perhaps more significantly was the fact that once that happened, I moved to California where the market had been really destroyed. And so when I started building my network, the people that were in that network were the people that were able to weather that storm. And so I was extremely fortunate to be put in contact with him and built my business around a lot of his investment thesis. And we saw the world very similarly, so it was easy to do. But without him, 
you know, this conversation might not be happening. I, I can't uh, speak highly enough of him. Uh, you, you and your listeners are probably familiar with him, and he's a great guest to have on a show. Um, but again, we're very different people. So it's really, mm-hmm. it's even now, it's really beneficial because when we partner together, we see the world very differently. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting. Um, it's a great dynamic. It's been really great for him as well, right? Because he put a lot of effort into someone that ended up being able to provide a lot of value for his career as well. Yeah, I love Jeremy. He's invested in a ton of our fix and flip deals. Great. And uh, just been a great guy to learn from. Great. Um, so finally, and one of my favorite questions is, what drives you to live your best life every day, Hunter? Yeah, so it's about that future anticipation of family. So right now it's my fiance, right? She is like, I can't, it's, it's very challenging for me to even put into words. I feel it was so favorable. Like, I love you know, I have previous relationships, which were great and awesome. And something like happens in your life where you're like, oh my gosh, is this, is this going to be like this forever? And like a year goes by and then two years go by and three years. And you're like, this is, we're just best friends. Like it just completely changes the category. Man, I just feel so lucky about that. I, I can't even expand on that, but yes, her. <laughs> That's that's amazing, man. I'm I'm really happy for you. That's a, a dream I look forward to. I have a similar driving force. Um, but in closing, where can people find out more about you and how can they get in touch? Yeah, so we just rebranded the company from Cashflow Connections, which is the name of the podcast now exclusively, to ASIM Capital. So you can visit us, uh, visit us at asimcapital.com. And if you're interested in getting an ebook about the self-storage market, Shoot me an email at info at asimcapital.com and I'll shoot you a couple ebooks and some interviews. And you guys, if you're in Southern California, definitely go to a Phoebe at some point. You know, Hunter's probably not at all of them, but he is at a lot of them. And definitely check out Cashflow Connection. It's got some incredible stuff for passive investors. So Great. thanks so much for being on, Hunter. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Head over to theinvestormindset.com to join the Insider Club, where we share tools and strategies from the top investors and entrepreneurs on how to take it to the next level.